Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a thing. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Monday, April 10th, Solid Ground live stream with Jennifer, Deborah, and David and myself. So very nice to see you guys today and um, looking forward to catching up. And uh, David, would you like to be the, would you like to start us off with the Solid Ground blurb? I'd love to. It's it's uh, it's if a day have that it. I haven't got it quite open, so <laughs> I'm just going to talk really slowly, like they do on the radio. Here we go. Solid Ground Blurb. So Solid Ground is a peer support community for anyone concerned about the imposition of critical social justice, CSJ, aka woke, and or COVID man and or COVID mandates in their workplace, university, children's school, or community. We offer weekly online peer support groups in which members share ideas, thoughts, and support for how to navigate the impact of these ideologies. And to answer the question, where do we go from here? You can join one of our groups for only $5 per month. To find out how to join our community, please visit solidgroundsupport.com. And please note that Solid Ground does not provide psychotherapy or legal advice, and nothing we do should be construed as such. Excellent. Thank, Thank you, you very much, David. <laughs> <laughs> we um, we have so many things to talk about. It seems like there's a never ending, I don't know, constant stream of, of interesting happenings in our culture. Some are funny, some are shocking, <laughs> some are maddening. Um, and some are cause for optimism. But one of the more bizarre things that I came across this past week was um, in a conversation with Christine Stephen and, and Carrie Bartholomew for a live stream we did last week. We were looking over this list of demands that was made by a queer student organization and a new ism that came onto my radar through that list of demands is this is this there's a new ism it's mentalism slash sanism. And, you know, this is just listed in a group of other isms that we're used to seeing. Like this was why I wouldn't sign the civility pledge at Antioch, the list of isms that we're supposed to be up in arms about like racism, ableism, nativism, sexism. I don't know. The, the list goes on, but this one really struck me mentalism slash sanism. And what does that mean? And I thought, how, where do we go from here? Where do we go if one side is saying that sanity, the expectation of sanity is an oppression, you know? What does that mean? <laughs> what do you guys think about that? Hmm. <laughs> Can we define mentalism as well? Because mentalism in the psychology world is a, you know, it's a way of men mentalizing someone else is almost having a bit of a theory of mind and understanding someone else. But I'm sure that's not what, what we're referring to here. Is that right? Yeah, it seemed like, I mean, this is no, no background is being offered on these things. It's just okay. a list, you know, it's just, it's just coupled in there with nativism and ableism and, the other isms that we're supposed to be upset about and be interrogating social dynamics for. 
And so mentalism, I don't know what that means. Mm. It seems like expecting people to think. Oh, maybe, I see. Using the, you, go on, go on, Deborah. Oh, no, or me. Oh, sorry. Well, I was thinking it might be just even having mental health categories. Like, mm. I don't know. Like if you have that person has a condition, but they didn't say mental health. So I don't know. Okay. Maybe being oppressed on by by being judged for mental health conditions. Is that what you mean? Yeah, maybe. Judge, maybe. Yeah. Hmm? That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to go down the route of saying, or one of you maybe was going to say something about how thinking cognitively, mentally, uh, is a is a Western, you know, some sort of trope like that, rather than I don't know a more subjective sense. But actually, I think the mentalism thing probably sounds more akin to what they would do because that's about normalization nor nor the, the, the normal curve and then everything apart from that which i guess is where all of these yeah all of these words are derived from a sense in which there's a normative distribution of attributes and we can put oppression along the same curve as well <laughs> what do you think jennifer what is mentalism i was wondering if it meant having normal cognitive abilities. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like that. I mean, that's, if you think about ableism being expecting people to be able-bodied and Mm -hmm. setting up a world that's unfair for people who aren't, then mentalism might be that exact thing. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. I just where do you think this might come up? Let's imagine, let's imagine the the the, the instructors come into the organization that, that requires um telling off, and the instructor says a good example of where sanism comes up in this workplace would be <laughs> any ideas? <laughs> um <laughs> valuing people who perform well more highly than valuing people who perform <laughs> poorly. <laughs> I mean, it seems to give an out for outbursts. Um, uh, this is kind of happening in the criminal justice system to some extent too, in terms of like, well, there are people say in the city and they might be mentally ill and we don't want to imprison them or, or something, you know, that's like oppressive we shouldn't expect them to behave normally or something like that. And then we, therefore we can't take care of public safety because we can't oppress these people or something like that. I don't know if that fits or not. But. Mm. That's kind of the first image that I had when I read this was this idea of sanism. And I thought about <laughs> what, what is that s- demanding sanity? So the opposite is insanity. And my first thought is where do we see that most um, I guess blatantly would be that's that. And, and that's the picture that came to my mind, walking around in Seattle and watching people just yelling, just standing on the street, yelling or throwing things or being really alarming, clearing the sidewalk because they're lunging at people, you know, and this is something you see downtown. And I guess a lot of big cities, I definitely have seen plenty of that in Seattle and, you know, to, to expect Otherwise, is that an oppression now of those people? And we should allow everybody to act like that all over the place. And I don't know, is that an, ex- is, am I taking that to an extreme or is, <laughs> is that what's meant by 
by that, do you think? There are arguments these, I think it might be happening more in San Francisco. I mean, you do see arguments of maybe more, well, it's compassionate to let these people say, do open air drug use, even if they have mental health things, that's better than incarcerating them, for example, or forcing them into treatment against their will or something like that. So, um, although I don't know if that, I don't know if that's showing that we're favoring, I guess it does show we're favoring sanity. Um, I, mean, I keep wanting to laugh because I just kind of think like we, we have um we have if we think of like medium of a culture dish I don't mean literally culture we have like a like mm -hmm. a we have a medium that we put the cell is in and that's the cell culture and then we think of the culture that we are all in there's the human culture like that is the thing that does change over time and shapes its understanding of what normal is so there is all of this loop positive feedback, negative feedback loop that's happening that shapes culture as it goes. Culture isn't defined by people who go into organizations and tell people how to live. Culture is shaped by all of the all of the feedback loops that are going on there. So if that's then defines what normal is, then normal will change anyway. So I don't know, it's just it's stuck this feels very stuck in your head about it, kind of saying, oh, there's one prescribed understanding of normal it's like but no but that changes as well that, that that understanding of normal changes as society moves on technology moves on and and all those things so um yeah yeah and uh, that's the that's kind of the foundation of queer theory isn't it to to say that there's nothing normal to tear down normal the concept of of norms and I, I mean, I don't, I guess I'm not super well-versed on that. I don't know if one of you can speak to that better. I, I think this might relate. It's, I, I'm also, if I wanted to, I don't want to steal man and type, it be maybe charitable. Mm -hmm. I suppose they might argue that there's some power people who are de determining what is sane, like they're deciding and then they're like, maybe they aren't really, or, or, you know what I mean? And then they get to declare this is what's normal and this isn't what's normal. And, and maybe they don't even really know. Um, so I, I could see them potentially doing, I could see them also potentially doing, you know, sometimes maybe say schizophrenic people, maybe they have access to another world of, mm -hmm. of information that we don't get because we're such in the scientific paradigm and we can only think a certain way. So we shouldn't be favoring our knowledge over yeah. something they're getting from other realms or something um yeah. that might be another that's angle? that's where james Lindsay would come in and talk about standpoint epistemology isn't it right and then the idea that like people with different oppression variables will see the world in different ways and therefore need to be held up because they're the only people that can see the true nature of the oppressive society we live in um we can't see it as people further up the pyramid of oppression because we haven't got that ability to we haven't got that lens it's almost as if we don't see those things that just that sounds like the argument. It was just thinking. I was just thinking as well. Like I heard Gabo Mate talking at some point about how how the world we live in is traumatizing everyone, and we're all insane. We're all the expectation to have to have an expectation of creating sane people in an insane world is is silly anyway. He says because we're creating trauma in people anyway. But I remember thinking even when he said that, thinking, but what if, if we're all traumatized? Then like. <laughs> That sounds chaotic to me. <laughs> it's just chaos that way. Yeah. 
I don't, I don't really like <laughs> the idea of abolishing standards and of saying that some things are preferable to others. And, um, you know, while occasionally I've met people with very severe mental illness that seem to have um, a great deal of creativity, I've certainly met, met more people who are not mentally ill, who are highly creative. And I think it's kind of romanticizing what's, um, romanticizing schizophrenia, which is a really debilitating disease of the brain. And I've worked for years with people with um, schizophrenia and other really severe chronic mental illnesses. And there's really nothing romantic about it. It's usually completely devastating to that person and to their health. They typically die 25 years earlier, even when you control for things like if they're a smoker or not. So I do think some things are preferable over others. I think health overall, physical health is preferable over ill health. And it doesn't mean that a person with ill health can't make meaningful contributions and live a meaningful life. But I think most of us, if we had our druthers, we're not gonna choose ill health. And I don't see why we should um, you know, make any bones about that. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point. And the this the idea of abolishing standards, something that I guess I'm still I'm still trying to wrap my brain around this, but it seems like as we are going, we're centralizing more and more and we're thinking of the world in this global terms. We're trying to, and I don't mean necessarily we, it just feels like that's the public discourse trying to broaden things out and generalize as much as possible so as to avoid, so as to be as broad strokes and inclusive to all as possible. And if you get, what is the end point of that? If, if we get things to where every single person is included in every single statement, have we, do we have anything meaningful left at all? Do we have any meaningful descriptions or understandings or standards, as you say? It's, you know, if you're trying to encompass every single potential possibility in every statement that you make, you've watered down your speech and your expectations to the point where there's nothing of substance really left. What on earth do you talk about? Yeah. What on yeah. earth is, where is the quality interactions anymore that actually help? Because we've got to a point now where it's not about people putting their point of view out there so that people can go, oh, I didn't know that. But you're telling me something new about yourself. It's withholding all of that and saying we shouldn't talk about it and we shouldn't risk offending people. So therefore, there's no quality interactions. It's all preordained or pre-understood. It's all, everything's pre-understood. It's like, ooh, that's not, that's not a society anyone wants to live in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Deborah. It comes back to that you know, whether Jordan Peterson, whoever, like having some, whether it's hierarchy of values or, or I'm listening to John Vervecchi a lot. He's a cognitive scientist and he's looking at the meaning crisis. And he's even saying with attention, we need to have some hierarchy of what we're even paying attention to, even just your mind, like moment to moment. You don't, you don't take in every single thing mm. in one moment. It's like, I look down, you know, at my desk and there's paper and I'm not aware of what's happening in China right now. Right. Or, or I choose to zoom out. Um, and so I think trying to make it as though we can include everything and pay attention to everything. It's like, we don't actually even like operate that way, just brain wise, much less, you know, 
you know, how can we, you know, make decisions have meaning or anything like that. So I, I wish I could say more. I, I need to understand him better to say more about it. But I think there's something about again, we just everything's everything. Mm. Nothing's <clears throat> anything. <laughs> Thinking about the brain as well, Deborah. I've, 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 <clears throat> I still don't really know too much about how this works but this is this kind of like way in which we project a, a, a kind of vision of ourselves in the future so that we have an understanding of how close we as a human being are orientating ourselves to this like idea about what we want in the future so there's an idea that somehow the pre, I think the prefrontal cortex does that and it's like if you can't what you pay attention to is it all in alignment to some idea about what what it is you want to expect and what you're expecting to happen. So that's how you become like attuned to your pattern recognition in your own brain. So it's like, yeah, hierarchies are built into your brain. Otherwise you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning because getting out of bed in the morning would be as, as worthwhile as not getting out of bed in the morning. So you just sit there and, you know, devolve into some sludge. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, devolving into sludge. <laughs> I like that statement. I guess it's good we have impulses like hunger or something like like a drive yeah. reduction. All you'd be left with is drive reduction theory. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I I kind of one of the things I thought when I read this phrase mentalism slash sanism is okay. That if that's where we're going with this, if that's where this whole movement, this intersectionality and oppression movement is going. I mean, doesn't that sort of prove that there's no more discussion really to be had with the proponents of this? If you can't, if if they, like you said a little while ago, Deborah, about rationalism is already, you know, not okay. You Like that's already white supremacy or whatever. So now sanity is also not okay. Um, it, it, it seems like the argument that trying to parse this is almost over. It's just time for the adults to start having a discussion about how to move forward. How do we, how do we overcome this and not engage with it? Not that we're necessarily, I don't know how many people are engaging with it or, or what, what everybody else's perspective is on this, but I feel like there's that it's not, and I'm not saying don't have compassionate discourse with people who seem like there's a potential for openings. And I, I do, I, I still do see that there are a lot of reasons why this kind of thinking is seductive to people in different circumstances and why people would fall into it. And I don't condemn people for falling into it at all. But at the point where even, even the expectation of basic sanity is being removed, is well, there a dialogue? I, I feel like, I feel like, and I hear that there's a very much an anti-medical model sentiment in the psychology world, um, which is about kind of, how discriminatory and oppressive diagnostic categories can be and it's like fine I, I yeah i get that but it totally can be but this is a this is this is the this is what i don't know if you said tail eating itself earlier leslie but this is how this is now becoming the same thing it's exactly the same thing you're now putting categories on people and you're saying this is the way you should behave and mm -hmm. one of the premise, one of the premises of cbt or the, one of the kind of strong um, parts of CBT that has a lot of evidence bases that exposure therapy and exposing yourself to the world and exposing yourself to difficulties and getting over threats and quieting down your threat detector because your threat detector goes actually maybe that maybe I was overthinking that and maybe it's not as bad as I think it is and actually I can overcome this stuff um, that's you know such a 
fundamental part of CBT and psychotherapy in general that um, I think we could start saying to people, how useful is this to people? How useful will this be? How useful will it be to sort of put cotton wool around people in this way? Yeah, I think that that's that's a good perspective to take. How useful is it? How are we serving? How are people serving themselves in a positive way? And how, you know, one of the most most shocking things about this statement is not that somebody could make it because people can make all kinds of silly statements. There's all kinds of silly things people believe, but it's that this was these this list of of isms was being put out by a an educationally affiliated group you know, being provided to students in schools through the Gay Straight Alliance, which is a school sponsored program, you know, so your education systems at work right now, teaching people the isms, again, including now sanism. Resilience building. Sorry, Deborah. No, I find it strange too, because there's the other side of it where, and you may have all discussed this before, where on the other hand, there are people choosing to want mental health diagnoses as identities, um, like Twitter bios, right? And someone wants to have bipolar, wants to have whatever their thing is, right? Like, and they, they, they're kind of like, yes, I'm this and I'm proud or, you know, whatever, right? And so there's this either one end is like, we don't even want to have any of these categories, even making those distinctions is somehow oppressive. And then we have this other end of people actually vaunting or getting some self-sense out of proclaiming it. I mean, it's, it's so many of the things that happen in this sort of space are oppositional to each other. <laughs> like they don't right. make sense. Yeah. I think the, the discussion around medicalization of mental health is one that I find very interesting. And I, uh, it was one of the things that disturbs me about our current, um, about the mental health field as it is going mm-hmm. currently. I feel like, when I was in graduate school learning about diagnosis, I, I felt like well, one of the things we were told, for instance, we, we, throughout my entire graduate program, we were paired up with other students uh, over and over in order to do mock sessions or, or, you know, get some practice on different skills or different assessments or whatever it might've been. And we always had to go through this full case conceptualization process um, with, with the other student. Well, I, I guess not always, but to the extent that it was relevant for the, for the particular exercise. And frequently a diagnosis was required. We were told there is a diagnosis, find it. If you can't find it, ask your professor because we'll find it for you. And that every single person has diagnostic mental health um, potential categories that they can be, that can be applied to them. And what, what you hope you're dealing with, if you're talking about a cohort of graduate applied psychology students is a fairly high functioning portion of the population, you would hope, right? You hope that these are not people who are just like, you know, pre-selected because they're going to be rife with lots of mental health diagnoses to harvest. But you're saying, even within this group of people, you're going to find every single person has you know, some mental health issues that we can diagnose. And I feel like that's a problem. That's, that's at that point, what, what meaning does that have really? I mean, we're, we're dissecting people 
and categorizing obsessively. And, you know, mm-hmm. you have this, you have that. Every diagnosis could merit a corresponding treatment cat, treatment protocol, which could include medications, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like there's a hyper medicalization of mental health going on. And I feel like a lot of the proponents of these isms are the same people who will be the, not protesting the diagnosis, but rather wanting to wear their diagnoses as a badge of honor. Like I think Deborah was just saying, was it, was that you that was just saying that Deborah talking about how people are, yeah, putting those out there and all the contradiction there. So there's this, you know, I, yes, I have bipolar or I have BPD or have whatever it is. Um, don't expect different. Don't oppress me by expecting me not to carry those diagnoses around. And I guess that that's a bigger topic, but that's kind of my read on how those things intersect. And also don't expect me to behave normally, right? Mm-hmm. There's, it, it seems like it's potentially like an okay a, a call pass, or I don't know what, right? Get out of jail free for if I'm not showing up in some sort of way, we might consider like adult or responsible or whatever. Um, and I, it, I can have a lot of compassion because there could be people that are struggling and it really is hard. And I, mm-hmm. but I, I think, I, I feel like it's, it's not really cynical, but it's something when people might just go, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not expected to be an adult or mm-hmm. something. Cause I have this thing. And, and again, I want to hold where there's some people that are just struggling so much to function. Like it, they just, you can't like expect a lot, but I feel like there's a gray area. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And uh, you know, that when you think about like the over identification and pride in some of these diagnoses, I think about people with pervasive um, emotional dysregulation issues. You would say maybe there's different ways to look at that. You could say, gosh, that person really needs help learning some coping skills and could, and needs to, you know, there, there should be, as you said earlier, Jennifer standards, we should have some standards and have some expectations for how people can, handle conflict and comport themselves in, in society. But if they can say, I have, don't oppress me with your expectations. I have borderline personality disorder and I, I can't be expected to have, you know, to, to demonstrate proper emotional or whatever proper means, even emotional regulation. What does that, where are we left then? If everybody can just pull out these diagnostic flags and, and accuse you of sanism if you're asking them to behave in whatever expectations ever, you know, categories, ways. That's a good point. I mean, but that also kind of really fits in with um, queer theory because queer theory is all about breaking down boundaries. And so if you're setting certain expectations, like in the workplace, for example, okay, if you get frustrated, you can't have a tantrum, you can't scream and yell, you can't insult colleagues, you can't curse them out, you can't throw things. Um, If somebody's saying, well, you can't have those standards because you're imposing the standards of, you know, sane people on everybody else, then they're essentially saying you can't have boundaries and you can't um, kind of set rules for engagement around how people could be in the workplace or who you're willing to engage with and who you're not. And I assume there's all people were not willing to engage with. If I saw somebody on the street behaving in a totally erratic way, and I didn't know this person and I don't know what they're capable of, 
that's not okay. And I'm not going to engage with that person. And I think those are reasonable boundaries. And I think they're absolutely essential that we have these boundaries. And it's also, I mean, to me, if, if you have a disorder of some type, you should aspire not to reject yourself because of that, but you aspire towards being on a, um, a good path of recovery and you aspire to overcome it and to live as well as you can with it, not to kind of um, succumb to the negative effects of it. Yeah. And demand societal accommodation. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. In other words, if I'm hearing voices, that doesn't mean it's okay for me to run up to a stranger and punch them in the face, which incidentally does happen. You want people to, <laughs> well, how do you cope when you hear voices? What do you do? Um, what can, what can lessen that? And there are things that people can learn, um, but you don't say to them, well, you know, who's to say that that's wrong to go punch somebody in the face or go threaten somebody or scream at a, scream at a stranger. We wouldn't do that. So I guess well, we're all over here. Well, um, especially if the person that is struck is, I mean, I hate to say this, but is privileged, right? Like it, it would be like, so what that person's privileged. So if they hit them, and there are people who would say that. <laughs> oh, it's just a cis hat white man. Who cares if they were punched? I, I remember hearing about the, you know, the term neurodiversity. I heard it the other day used in a, um, in a t- context at work where people would go around going, I'm, I'm neurodiverse and someone going, yeah, I'm, I'm neurodiverse as well. And I remember thinking like, wasn't that neurodiversity an attempt for people to kind of go, do you know what? There's quirks and there's a spectrum and there's all this stuff. And now it's like, we've ended up again, categorizing because I'm neurodiverse, you're not neurodiverse. <laughs> not like the whole diversity thing has happened again. <laughs> we've ended up creating categories. I think that's the thing is like, it's not the, it's, it's the act of categorization. It's not the, it's not the. It's not always that 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 something about that category and the connotation. You can have definitely connotations alongside categories that make them sound worse. Like I think, like a like a category like personality disorder. You could argue personality disorder. How, how how helpful is that as a label? You could find a label that's slightly. But at the end of the day, it's the act of categorizing people, which in itself is the is the thing that's that we we should be wary of, rather than rather than the term itself. Once we categorize, we become lazy and we become, we have our own biases. Um, and this is the thing that frustrates me about this ism stuff is it's it's another act of categorization that's so convinced it's doing it from the right point of view, in the right way. <laughs> and does no, it tri- always, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. You go ahead, Deborah. Oh no, I was just thinking it's, it's tricky because I'm thinking about the place like where would I want to make accommodations? Like for example, Say there was someone who they're neurodiverse, think they, maybe they were autistic. And so maybe they don't have the social cues and those skills, but maybe like they, they love coding, they can write the software. And so I might know, say, if they come and they're working in the office, like I might know, okay, maybe they're not going to have outbursts, but I might know they might not be as smoothly, you know, socially engaging as other people, but they might actually produce really good work. And um, I might just want to set expectations, you know, let other people in the staff know, like, okay, just 
like I, I wouldn't want to say, oh, that person just can't even work at all or something because of this, or, or somebody may have severe ADHD or something, and yet they really can produce some genius work. And so like, there's this place I noticed, it's just that some of these things just go too far, right? So where is it that we can go? No, we don't need you to be a cookie cutter. Everything's perfect, whatever. Um, we have a little give, but not to the point that the whole, you know, feels overtaken. There's no boundary anymore at all, like you're saying, Jennifer. Yeah. And what you're saying there reminds me of well, it makes me think of the tendency to stereotype too, because at the point where we start labeling and categorizing, are we not just inviting stereotyping? Because those, yeah. if somebody is like, I'm, I'm neurodiverse and, and say they use one of those, those descriptors that you use like severe ADHD or autism or whatever. And then the employer just automatically thinks, okay, well, mm -hmm. I know what to do with you. Have mm -hmm. we lost sight of the potential for that person to be an individual with their own uh, exactly. you know, their own strengths and weaknesses that are different from what your stereotyped expectation is of that person. And they could yeah. be quite different. And it's, yeah. is it, how meaningful is it to give people these broad categorical labels? And also does it invite not just stereotyping, but does it invite people to um, want to identify with the new category, with the new yeah, label? Yeah. Mm. They could externalize that. They could well. They'll put their put their problems or difficulties down to oh, it's mine. It's they relinquish some of their control, or maybe they relinquish some of their yeah control in their own life because they say oh, it was because of my neurodiversity. And it's like okay, could be. Might yeah, be. it's it's like a built-in safety net excuse, or, you know, or 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 protection from responsibility for certain things, but also for even people who maybe don't fit that category. Like think about how, when we sneer at cishet white man, does that create a pressure in some people who are still in the identity formation process to want to be anything but that, mm. and, you know, by setting up categories that are special, <laughs> you know, it's, it has to be in opposition to something. And what's the something, the something is the, you know, the normal, the quote normal. And therefore the, what, standard, boring, less desirable, not flashy and twinkly. Yeah, I'm neuro-undiverse, so I'm not as great in a brainstorm situation, eh? <laughs> I'm boring and predictable. <laughs> yeah, that I thought of that when you said somebody says I'm neurodiverse and somebody says, hey, me too. I mean, it sounds like, <laughs> yeah. hey, that's cool. We're all neurodiverse, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You guys want to check in on the chat? Yeah. All right, let's see. So Bill Bob uh, 7624, I'm just going to go back to the beginning and then I'll, I won't read them all, but I'll read a few. Says, um, mentalism is bending spoons with your mind. <laughs> oh, you're a geller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, is it? Is that really what that's called? Mentalism? He's himself a mentalist, I think. Oh, interesting. Darren Brown as well, as you've heard of him. Yeah. 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 Adam Key Sinclair says mentalism is a performing art like magic tricks and such. There was even a television program called The Mentalist. Okay. Right. Interesting. Hey, All right. Friar Pestle says hello. 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 Uh, CNY photo video says hello and then says, is ableism really an ism or, or just plain ignorance about people's needs? Been disabled for 45 years. We have made great progress. Mm. Yeah. I, that's a good perspective. Just mm. ignorance about people's needs. I do think 
That is a good point. I, I think that, you know, we see so much more attempts to make spaces accessible. And I think that's great. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, Adam Keith Sinclair, I think culture is shaped by the past religion slash tradition, etc. And of course, the generation programming that exists formative years yield the present. James McDougall norms and standards needed for a functional society intentionally creating disorder. Adam Key Sinclair says, I've heard the schizophrenic argument of advanced perception. I think that's a slippery slope to explain what we can't explain with non-scientific attempts to get something answered. I think that speaks to what you were saying, Jen. Yeah. yeah. And it also leads to relativism, non-concrete reasoning. It's interesting. Uh, Mike Wilson Art says, so the question is, what's the standard acceptable baseline? Uh -huh. uh, he also says, we used to have something called common sense. So what does that mean now? And, and then Jay Bourne asks, do you get a trophy for winning the sludge competition? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I tell you, you what, if, if you say to yourself, actually, I have devolved into sludge and someone goes, but I've devolved into a better bit of sludge than you. You're like, oh, we're back on the, we're evolving again. We've got categories again. That <laughs> sludge is diversity. Yeah, it's diversity of sludge. Um, CNY photo video, we can't bargain with madness. The demands to more craziness will just increase. Yeah, exactly. And then Fire Pestle says that sludge sounds like a doom metal band. <laughs> oh, man. I, I wish I were a musician right now. I want a band oh. called Sludge. Doom sludge. We've got, some, we've got some good listeners. You've got a good audience, Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who had a band named Pond Scum. Is that close? <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's very good. Yeah. Um, let's see. Opinions on why they are drugging these kids up. Trent and Paul. Drugging these kids up. I guess that's back to the discussion about medicalization of mental health, perhaps. I don't know. Do you guys have any specific thoughts on that? I, I think that, you know, it's mental illnesses have become less stigmatized, which is a good thing. But the bad part of that is um, it's become so normal just mm -hmm. to immediately put kids on medication yeah. and you know, I think a lot of it is really done in good faith. Like you see a patient who's suffering and you think, Hey, this pill might be able to make you feel better. So let's try this. And there's times when, yes, that really is necessary. But I also think people are over-medicated before they've really worked on other things. Um, and I definitely think ADHD is over-medicated with kids. And sometimes that's the pressure of the school to put people on um, medication so that they're not as disruptive in class. And again, there are times when, okay, that can be helpful, but I think there's, um, it's just so normal. You know, it's like taking allergy medicine or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a lot of pressure from the school to get my oldest daughter medicated for um, ADD, ADHD. And I didn't, I didn't want to do that. We, we used other techniques to work with her, but she was, she did have a lot of trouble with focusing and 
you know, just anecdotally, we, once we found out, we discovered that she actually had some dietary mm-hmm. issues and we addressed those, all of her issues resolved. And she was very sharp and very capable and it, all the attention issues went away. And that was, it was phenomenal to see that happen. We just, it was addressed through avoiding certain things in her diet and doing some supplements. And I had been dealing with years of the school, trying to get me to get her um, on medication and get an IEP for her. So that was just our experience. And so few doctors know anything about nutrition and how it impacts us. So that's, that's really frustrating. You basically have to find some kind of specialist or do a lot of your own research. Yeah. And what you're saying about giving a medication easily, because you see that it could actually be helpful. There's truth in that it's quick and something that's controllable and can often make a positive change. But if you do that, you won't investigate further a lot of times and might not come to what's actually a more a more whole person sort of resolution or, or solution to the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that yeah. seems to be an issue across the board, right? I mean, we see it with either the medicalization of the kids around the trans issue or just anything, right? Like I'm shocked when someone could have some issue, like my mom might have digestive and no one says, what are you eating? You know, like, it's like, <laughs> take this and then take that and then take such and such for side effects. And so unless you find a holistically oriented medical practitioner, it seems like we're skating over a whole bunch of things that may actually be the real answer and having things that might have ancillary side effects that you're, you spend, you know, you're chasing them all the time. Yeah. The trans issue is a really great example of that, like to, to an extreme. And, you know, we always hear gender as a social construct. Well, I just think transgender is a medical construct because what we're doing there is we're giving, we're giving medical solutions to, you know, internal issues, internal um, psychological issues, pain, emotional pain and stress. And here's the medical solution. And in this case, it's something quite extreme. So that's a big tangent. Well, do any of you want to, do you have any final thoughts to wrap up this insane discussion? <laughs> I could say something that may be a segue if we kind of go along, which is, you know, Jennifer, and you were talking about, well, we sh- can't we, can't we be for health, right? Can't we be, for, you know, where it goes to the other extreme on the other end, and this is where we could bring in, if we're going to transhumanism or trans, whatever, right, can be what, well, then we should try to eliminate dying or we should try to eliminate, you know, what degree do we want to eliminate aging? What degree do we want, do we want to do certain experiments with who knows what or what in our, you know, whatever to prevent certain diseases. And it's like, so it could go to the other end too, of how far do we want to go to have no suffering, no suffering anymore. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And which gets into some scary stuff, I think. And we, 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 and we also just forget again that the suffering in sounds like we want to avoid at all costs, but it's also the thing that helps us grow 
on some level, like thinking about normal ranges of movement, uh, sorry, not, not normal ranges of movement, normal ranges of suffering and how that those things are immediately medicalized now. Someone having a bereavement in their family may be decided, it might be decided fairly soon that they're depressed when actually they're going through grief, they're going through something that they're having to process and understand over a long period of time. Their life then becomes something that's created around that bereavement, if you like, and they 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 then become integrated. They become something bigger, maybe as a result of that. But there's no talk of that thing happening when you talk about overcoming things. It seems to be just we'll medicalize this because you're uncomfortable. You can't stay with this level of discomfort. I don't know. We're back to the normal, I guess. I used the word normal there, didn't I? <laughs> well, and that's really short term, right? I mean, thinking yeah. like that. I mean, it's it's like, well, quickly, let's alleviate the suffering right now. But we're not. But even if even if the alleviation alleviation of suffering is a good ideal, who's to say on what scale? Like at what? Uh, you know, by fixing something for somebody that they're dealing with right now, are we not perhaps kicking the can down the road for them to deal with something even greater later, or sure. shortening their lifespan, or? preventing, like you say, grow, positive growth that could mm -hmm. really be helpful for that person. And, you know, this, not to really spend a lot of time on it, but the trans issue is like, it's a clear issue of that, where we're, we're making these big modifications to people's young bodies that could foreseeably cause lots mm -hmm. of suffering later in order to assuage some suffering that they're going through right now. And so yeah. even if even if control for suffering is a, let's just say it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. still are we not being super short-sighted when we're taking some of these medical approaches exactly it's seeming to me in your role as therapist there's this like a, a regular uh, assessing what is i don't know like in buddhism we might talk about right speech right this right that like what is right suffering like what is what is like tuning into like what seems like a natural process and I want to support someone in this and not bypass it and or, or determining like wait a minute this is overwhelming or something maybe we do need to do something else and, and that's mm -hmm. going to be a hard call um, I'm imagining yeah because I don't think that um, I don't think a life of no suffering is a reasonable or even desirable goal because you do learn through suffering, a certain amount of suffering is, um, it's just normal. It's part, it's part of the human experience, you know, and a lot of teaching clients how to manage anxiety is teaching them how to tolerate anxiety, not to rush to yeah. escape. Anxiety. Mm -hmm. So there is that it's kind of, um, I don't know. I, I, I guess there's contradictions in that, you know, it's kind of like if, if you have a client who's um, becomes very anxious when they go to the grocery store, you don't tell them to stop going to the grocery store. You help them if they need steps to get to the grocery store, then fine. But we, we figured out at least um, that avoiding something actually increases the anxiety. You, you build up more and more dread and anxiety about it. So facing it becomes the thing to do to deal with the anxiety. You face the anxiety and then the anxiety lessens eventually. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's not like clear, I guess there's not like clear categories for what's an acceptable level. Prior Pestle says distress tolerance is sanest, I suppose. 
It is. It's very sanest. <laughs> yeah. I Now I'm hearing about this and I just got the CTA book and I haven't read all of it yet. I'm, I'm really excited to read the whole thing. And one thing I'm very interested in is this whole concept of rejecting CBT that's happening right now. Mm. Are you familiar with this? Because I didn't know about this until very recently that there's, because this wasn't a movement. I, I mean, I've, I was in school as recently as last year. I haven't taken any classes since last year, since I, you know, imploded my, my graduate program, but um, the, we were still being taught CBT in a very positive way, but I understand that there's a new movement against CBT because it's too, uh, I guess it implies that we have agency. Mm. And is this on y'all's radar at all? It has not been on my radar. I've been aware that, you know, all of these things like in critical race theory, it it all goes against CBT, but I didn't know there was any kind of explicit movement towards um, abandoning CBT because I mean, yes, it does. It does help you to feel your agency. And that's why it works because you realize that even in a difficult situation, there's different ways of thinking about the situation. There's different ways of holding it, processing it. There's different decisions you can make. So it's all about agency. Not that you can control everything, but that you are taking control in a positive way of what you can. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I guess if you want people to think they're oppressed, you can't go around teaching them that they can affect more positive outcomes. It kind of makes sense. Well, and it's like a blame, from their perspective, it would be blaming the victim. It would be saying you're you're the victim of oppression, but you should be the one to change your mindset so that you can live in a world that's oppressing you. Right. And you're also not doing anything to change that bad system. Right. If you're just busy with it, it's all me, I'm going to do it. You're not doing your activism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I definitely have heard criticism of CBT, not always particularly high resolution stuff, but people just kind of, I think they sometimes learn from their supervisors who learn from their supervisors just to be able to say things like, oh, CBT, it's very, it's very individualist, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Or they'd say it's very, it's very sort of, it's very much like rational, it's very much focusing on rational, rationality and, and the idea that we should all be um, orientating ourselves to some, some kind of ideal, I think that's the complaint about it. So you have things like negative, negative thinking styles or, 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 or unhelpful yeah, cognitions, and you kind of go, hmm, unhelpful, hmm, negative, sounds a bit judgy to me, I don't like that, and that's, that's the sort of people, that's the sort of thing people say, honestly, that's pretty rife, I'd say, in in my course, and I, I think there's a lot of, I think it happens to a lot of people that they just kind of go, oh, CBT, that feels very old school, and there's a sense in which I don't think people understand it, Um, I even remember talking to some prospective trainee, trainees, if you like, people who were applying, and they were saying, Oh, I don't want to apply there. It's quite CBT focused. And I was like, what, why don't you want to apply there? Because it's CBT focused. They're like, I don't want to be coming out a cold CBT bot who's just doing CBT to people. And I remember thinking, like, what are you talking about? There's so much more to be like learn about. We're students at the very start of our career in some way. Well, not completely, but like, you know, got lots to learn in this sense in which there's a connotation that's being knocking around about CBT. And I wonder. I wonder how deliberate that is. I wonder if it's a sort of zeitgeisty thing. Yeah. And it's also very easy to be, to call it white 
and male if you want to as well. Well, that's so interesting that you're seeing that so much. I, I got, um, I've been contacted by a few Antioch students recently, and I, I had a discussion with one, uh, one student who's still enrolled in a, in the program that I just left. And, um, she talked about this, that this is, there's a very strong anti-CBT current. And I thought Mm -hmm. how interesting that that developed so suddenly, because it was very, the program, I would say that CBT was promoted over other things when I was there, when, when I was there, it was uh, at least for writing treatment plans, smart treatment planning, it was heavy on CBT and I never heard anything negative. And it was one of the things that did seem like a bit of a contrast to me. Mm. I, I've talked about how there were just contradictions all throughout the, the education, but for it to so suddenly take on that tenor, as you say, sort of in the zeitgeist, this, mm. Ooh, we're, you know, that's not so good. That's kind of individualistic. Mm. That is such ridiculous criticism of any type of therapy because therapy by definition is at the level of the individual. So, I mean, what are we doing training our clients to be good little collectivists, good little communists? <laughs> yep. That is the bot, the bot comment was funny too, right? Because they don't, are they not recognizing that they're repeating scripts? <laughs> all the time themselves oh that's a really good point i know yeah. it's i think it should be called applied sociology instead of mm. therapy at these programs this is not it's not psychology yeah. anymore it's sociology mm-hmm. well i i guess we should probably wrap up unless there's any final thoughts that you'll have on this insane topic again I had another thought, but maybe we could save it till another time. I, I was basically like, um, my supervisor said to me a few weeks ago, it was very nice of him, but he sort of said, I said to him, can I take a, I've got loads of holiday. I said, can I take a bit of a half day off tomorrow morning? Cause I'm feeling just run down and tired. And then we had a long conversation for the following week about how he's like, we need parity of mental health with physical health. So if you needed to take half an hour, you know, half a day off, that should be considered mental health. That should be considered just as important as if, you've got something physical wrong with you or sickness wrong with you or something like that. And I thought, Hmm, I really like that. Thank you very much. And then I remember thinking to myself, okay, how far do we, is there a sense in which there's a, there's a, there's a consequence to this. If we kind of just go, yeah, well, I'm not thinking like, not feeling like I want to come to work today. You know, I think I'm going to take the day off. <laughs> um, but that, maybe that's slightly related to what we were talking about with regards to sort of, um, hmm medicalizing a lack of motivation potentially <laughs> well maybe you were just motivationally diverse <laughs> i think exactly i think i i i have motivational diversity also i look at motivation in a very different way to you guys okay <laughs> let's go back to being a sludge bucket again <laughs> well Thank you all for this great conversation and for being a little pocket of non-sludge in the world. <laughs> a less sludgy pocket. That's kind of gross. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. And thank you for everybody who joined us in the chat. 
We'll Thank see you. 